0: Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, if you'd open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. The topic, Jesus tells the believers in Philadelphia they are serving him exactly the way he wants them to. The title of our message, It's Always the Son's Way in Philadelphia. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for our morning. We want to be a grateful people. We have a lot to be thankful for. We're thankful not for all things, Lord, but in all things. Uh, I pray that we would recognize your hand and your wisdom and your grace, Lord, and all that we're going through. Uh, We've set aside this time to study your word. Uh, You've brought us to this passage. We do believe that you've brought us to it, Lord. It is for this time in our lives. Uh, And uh, Lord, because you love us so much, you can speak to each and every one of us personally and individually from this very text, written centuries ago, Lord, to a church in Philadelphia, in Turkey, Lord, but it's so meaningful and powerful to us if we will have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. No one likes waiting in line to begin with. It's even worse when waiting in line makes you feel foolish. I walked up to Bank of America about the time it was supposed to open. A line had formed, and I took my place in it. Fully five minutes after the bank was supposed to be open for business, while at least 10 of us were grumbling in line, a person arrived who bypassed the line, went to the door, pushed on the door, and went right in. The door had been open the whole time. We just assumed it was locked because the first person in the line hadn't tried it. They'd arrived there a couple of minutes before 10 or whenever the bank opened back, you know, in the the dinosaur times. And... uh, Uh, Who remembers bankers? Does the the terminology banker's hours mean anything to anybody anymore? Who remembers banker's hours? All right. I have banker's hours. No one else does anymore. But anyway, and so it was open. The door was open, and nobody had tried the door. Open doors are featured prominently in the letter from Jesus to the church in Philadelphia. He tells them, verse 8, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Many significant scholars identify the church in Philadelphia with the missionary period of church history beginning around the 17th century and extending into our own time. That being the case, we want to pay special attention to what Jesus is saying to us as we seek to serve him by taking the gospel to the whole world. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you're to keep working while the doors are open. And number two, you're to be waiting when the door opens. First of all, in verses 7 through 9, Keep working because doors are open. Biblical Philadelphia was in Turkey, as were all the seven churches Jesus wrote to in the Revelation. Today, it's the city of Alasehir. It was founded by a ruler called Attalus, who loved his brother so much that he said, I'm going to call my new town Brotherly Love. Five separate main roads converged at the ancient city of Brotherly Love. Coming from the west, these roads go out into Asia. They go on from there to India and right out into the Far East to China. Philadelphia was quite literally an open door to the rest of the known world. Part of its official function in the Roman Empire was to export the Greek Hellenistic culture to the rest of the world via the many travelers who stopped there and then went on their way. It was, in fact, a missionary city for Rome. Do you ever think of secular institutions as being missionary? They are. In fact, most institutions have a carefully crafted mission statement. They're definitely about uh, what they want to do in sending you along your way. Colleges and universities, for example, they want to change the way students think. They want to convert them to their worldview, which is something that we should think about as Christians and as Christian parents when we're sending our children out to school. Before I will read a book anymore identified as Christian, I want to know the mission of the author. If I know where the author is coming from, I know where they are trying to take me, and I can decide ahead of time if I want to go there. It's not like reading a mystery novel you know, where where you want to know the end. That'll spoil it. But Christian books, uh, find out where the guy is coming from. Where does he go to church, what's his denomination, what is his philosophy, uh, and it'll help you a great deal understand where he's trying to take you and why. Now one other thing about Philadelphia needs, uh, needs to be mentioned, along the main street were a series of pillars on which the names of citizens whom the emperor or ruler wanted to honor. Think of it like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, in not, not totally, but it's similar. Now, we don't know how or by who, but a church was founded in Philadelphia right along this critical highway with open doors to the rest of the empire and the rest of the world. Jesus decided he could use the physical situation of Philadelphia to his advantage to spread the message of salvation from the church there out to the rest of the world. And so verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens the angel meaning the pastor read the revelation to the believers and while he was reading he came across this passage addressed directly to them, they would have no idea. Uh, you know, they didn't have any advanced copy. They couldn't look on Amazon and look inside the book to see what the pages were going to say. This was some Sunday, probably that they showed up maybe a Sunday night, and uh, all of a sudden their pastor got up and said, "I've just received a, a, a letter. Uh, you know, and we're going to read it all the way through. And you get here to what we call Chapter Three, and all of a sudden it's addressed to them. Uh, that'll make you stand up and listen, right?" Have you ever received a life altering letter? You probably have, maybe a college acceptance letter or for that matter a college rejection letter. I remember years ago I thought I was a this is was, I wasn't even how old was I? I was a teenager. I thought I was a great short story writer and I finally figured out no one was going to buy my short story so I started collecting <coughs> rejection letters. And so I just sent I sent it to all kinds of crazy places just so I could get rejection letters on different stationery. I wish I had those, but I think I burned them in a bipolar moment. But uh, anyway, no correspondence could possibly compare to a personal letter from Jesus Christ. Of course, we understand that this letter is addressed to us and to all believers, just as the entire Bible is addressed to us. How many times have you heard somebody say that the Bible is what? God's love letter directly to you. And we believe that. But if we believe it right now, do you believe that your life could be forever altered every time you encounter Jesus Christ in his word? Because it can. I think we need to get back to trembling with anticipation and expectation as the word is read. It should always be life-altering in every encounter. Now, Jesus describes himself as holy and true. By emphasizing these two attributes, Jesus is reassuring the Philadelphians that he could honestly, accurately assess their spiritual condition. They could absolutely trust his judgment. I think it might surprise them that Jesus had no words of correction or condemnation for them, but only commendation. Jesus being holy and true, they must take him at his word. I mean... We talked a minute ago about the excitement of knowing that Jesus had written a letter to you. But up until now, for the most part, the letters haven't been all that positive. Uh, The church at Smyrna, which was suffering, kind of got a pass. But then, of course, they were enduring gross persecution. But all the other churches, Jesus had some condemnation for them. And so all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Jesus, he's going to start talking to us. And, And, you know, every humble Christian feels like there are areas in their life that need to be corrected. And so I think it might surprise them that Jesus only had words of commendation, uh, and they should take him at his word. Now, Jesus claimed to have the key of David. This is additional to the keys of Hades and death, which we saw in his possession in chapter 1. In the Gospel of Luke, we read, and I quote, Jesus shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. There is a kingdom coming in which Jesus Christ will actually rule the earth from David's throne in Jerusalem. This book builds up to it, taking us chronologically through the church age, then through the seven-year tribulation, to the second coming, to the 1,000-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. Jesus has a full key chain. I mentioned that he has the keys of Hades and death, and he has the key of David. He also has keys to all the doors on the earth that he opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. These are primarily, in context here, doors of ministry that he opens and shuts to direct his followers and their service to him. In the case of Philadelphia, he was reminding them that situated, uh, situated excuse me, as they were, they had the perfect location from which to spread the gospel all along the roads that led into and out of their city. It was his strategy for their ministry. It was therefore their priority to discover ways to affect folks passing through so that the gospel could spread from there all over the empire and beyond it. And and so, uh, you know, you didn't need to be a a, a theologian to figure out that if you were a church in Philadelphia and people were coming through on a constant basis and going out to the rest of the world, that you ought to be thinking of ways to affect them for the gospel so that they could. take that with them and affect the rest of the world. Every church ought to constantly assess what doors of ministry Jesus has opened and what doors he has shut. Uh, The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still opens doors. He still shuts doors. And one of the problems that churches have is that um, it's a human problem too, but it comes into the church. Once you establish a ministry within the church, you think it can never stop. Otherwise, there's something wrong. And it's hard to say to people, hey, we feel like this is a closed door and that the Lord has opened this other door. People get very touchy about ministry and about what they feel is their area of ministry or something like that. And we need to be more sensitive to Jesus opening doors and shutting doors so that we don't become like the church we read about last week, a dead church. Now, by assess, I first mean we must pray and hear from God the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, for example, a group of leaders were worshiping together while fasting when the Holy Spirit told them he wanted them to send out Paul and Barnabas on a mission. How did God the Holy Spirit make himself known? Well, the text doesn't say except that it mentions that some of them were prophets. God the Holy Spirit can still make God's will known for us, known to us as we worship the Lord. We should never succumb to human logic or statistics or demographics to determine open doors. Those things are interesting. It's, you, know, you don't want to ignore what's happening around you. Ministry doesn't happen in a vacuum. But you can't look at something demographically, strictly demographically, and say, it's our strategy to go here and do this. That had better be an open door. Uh, because the Lord, remember, wants to do things that are kind of weird sometimes, uh, as the best way I can put it. He wants to, people to look and say, you sent that guy there? That makes no sense. And yet ministry is taking place. And so we don't want to factor out what I call the weird factor. Uh, we don't be weird to just be weird. But God, God does some interesting things with interesting people like us. Consecrated circumstances too can play a role as God puts us in situations and he creates relationships that will incite invitations and reveal open doors. A lot of the ministry that we've done over the years, especially missionary activity, has been because of circumstances that we found ourselves in with other individuals and invitations that were made for us to be involved in different ministry and we prayed about it and sensed that these were open doors. Now, verse 8, he says, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. You have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. He had judged their works thus far, and he was pleased with them. When you go to the Lord, are you always expecting him to criticize you? Be honest. Do you anticipate him constantly telling you where you are falling short? Because he can just as readily have words of commendation. And he most certainly desires to encourage you in your service. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord will never correct you. Uh, I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't want to show you some things in your life. Of course he does. But I think we've, we, uh, you know, have a general attitude that every time we go to the Lord, we're going out to the woodshed and, and we're just going to get whooped and whomped on, you know, and, and, and stuff. And, and maybe we deserve, but you know, I think the Lord also commends us. Uh, sometimes he commends us for things that we didn't even know we were doing. We're like, I would just take it, just say, okay. It's like those guys in in Matthew where Jesus says, hey, you fed me when I was naked or when I was hungry. Well, you might have fed him when he was naked too, but you fed me when I was hungry and you clothed me when I was naked. You visited me when I was in jail. And they said, well, when did we do that? I don't have any memory of that. Shh, shut up. (laughs) If the Lord thinks we did that, hey, you know. I'm down with that, but that's the attitude you know, the Lord's looking for ways to commend you for things that you don't even know you did, and so just, just go to the Lord uh, and spend time with Him and see what happens. Um, they had discovered, and they were going through the open doors of ministry. For one thing, it must mean that they were sending out believers to minister elsewhere, For another thing, it must mean they were ministering to travelers, leading them to Christ, who then went on to their respective cities, east and west, with the gospel. Now, Jesus commends them for three things. He says, number one, you have a little strength. This can mean a couple of things, and it probably means both, since I I think they're related. First, we hear little strength, and we immediately think that the church was small in number with very limited resources. And that was probably true. Jesus doesn't quantify the way we do. He still works with five loaves and two fishes if that's all we have, or he'll work with the widow's might if that's all we give. Little strength can also mean a proper humility in understanding that it's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit that we are to minister. And so we recognize our own little strength, actually no strength without the Lord, And so this is a powerful combination of things. And may it be our prayer that we always have little strength, even if or when we are blessed with abundant resources, to never trust in resources or never be held back by the lack of resources. Many times God wants us to take reasonable steps of faith in a certain direction. If we just look at the bottom line, you know, we're, we're never going to do that. It's, it's interesting to me, and I put myself in this category, too. It's interesting, you know, we look in our ministry and we think, well, you know, God hasn't provided for that, and so I guess that's not an open door when sometimes you just have to take a step. In our personal lives, we think, hey, I can't really afford that new truck, but I've got great credit, so I'm going to go for it. And, 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 you know, it's like, so we, we have things kind of backwards, I think. And the Lord, I just take steps of faith, reasonable faith. You know, don't, don't be doing crazy stuff. There was a lady in town years ago who used to write faith checks. Uh, she would hear that you were struggling and, you know, and, and maybe you couldn't make your rent or needed groceries. She'd write you a check for a certain amount, whatever the Lord put on her heart. She'd give you that check. You'd take it to the bank, and nine times out of ten it would bounce because it was a faith check. She said, well, the Lord told me to write you a check for $100. I was trusting him to cover it. And he didn't, so praise the Lord. In the meantime, you're not only out the 100 bucks, and you still have to pay your rent, but now you've got fees on top of that. So that's not the kind of faith I'm talking about. But sometimes we can't initially say, oh, I'd love to do that if I had the money. We need to see if the Lord will provide as we move forward. Uh, Now, second, Jesus commended them by saying, you have kept my word. You could meditate on this a long time. It can have any number of possible meanings uh, in Philadelphia and in any church. One application that seems in context is that they believed Jesus' word was sufficient for them. They weren't looking to supplement it in any way but to share it and to let the inherent power of it transform lives. In other words, I would envision Philadelphia as a church that emphasizes, or emphasized rather, evangelism in their ministry. Now, over the years, I've heard Christians criticize churches that seem overly evangelistic. They say things like, they never really teach the Bible because they are always concentrating on getting people saved. They say, well, that's a great place to get saved, but if you really want to grow, you'll have to go elsewhere. Now, those criticisms are just lame. What's wrong with inviting non believers to be saved while you're teaching the Bible? And how is it a sign of growing in the Lord to always be learning about Jesus but never sharing him with other people? And so I think this is more of a function of God raising up churches in different places at different times with different ministries. We need to figure out what the Lord wants us to do and then we need to do that. And then third here, he commended them by saying, you have denied, excuse me, you have not denied my name. This alerts us that they were being persecuted. They were being pressured to deny Jesus Christ, but they hadn't done it. They wouldn't deny their Lord, no matter the cost. At least some of the persecution was coming from the folks in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, we've encountered these guys before in the letters to the churches. I explained why we don't think they were Jews, but rather Gentiles who were claiming to be the true followers of God. For one thing, the words they say they are Jews and are not seems to communicate rather plainly they are not Jews. They say they are, but they're not. They're Gentiles. It's not at all unusual, or it's not as unusual as you might think, for a group of Gentiles to claim to be Jews. You're undoubtedly familiar with the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses claim that some of them are those who are called in the Bible the 144,000. It is their doctrine that only these 144,000 JWs are going to be in heaven. The number comes from later in the Revelation, we'll get there, where we are told God is going to seal and send out 144,000 witnesses on the earth during the Great Tribulation. They are meticulously described as being 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. They are ethnic Jews. Yet the JWs claim, it's us. They say they are Jews, but lie. Lie. They are therefore not the kingdom hall, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan in that they are following the doctrines of demons. Don't be disturbed by the phrase, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Jesus didn't say they would worship believers, but that they would worship him in their presence. This is another reference to the future kingdom in which every knee shall bow before Jesus as he rules the earth from David's throne. Here it serves as an encouragement to the Philadelphians that no matter how hard things get, their victory is secure. There's coming a future time when Jesus rules the world and we rule it with him. In every phrase of this letter, I hear Jesus saying, guys, I'm coming. In light of his coming, we're to be about his business in spreading the gospel. We spread the gospel by discovering and then going through open doors of ministry. There's nothing wrong with trying doors. The Lord will show you if they are open or shut. The apostle Paul Always tried doors. I'll read you a passage from Acts chapter 16. Paul is traveling with uh, some missionary companions, and he sa- it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. In other words, the door was closed to Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so Paul, he knew he was called to preach the gospel, and he just kept trying to go places doing it. And if God didn't want him to go there, the doors would be closed. We're not told how the doors were closed or why he just couldn't get there. And in this particular case, one night he received a vision from the Lord saying, Hey, come to Macedonia, preach the gospel in Europe. That is the new open door for you. And immediately he went through. Paul was going for it. He seemed to assume doors were open unless he couldn't get through them. Once he discovered the open door, he rushed through it, believing God would honor his word. It's one thing for me to wait outside B of A for the door to be opened, only to find out that it was open all along. It's a more serious thing for me to wait to try spiritual doors when they are, in fact, open already. And so just go for it. If you have an idea, you have a, a thought for ministry or something on your heart, just go for it. The Lord will show you if it's not an open door. There's no uh, you know, shame in trying it, rather than just holding back, and you will discover some new open doors. Now, you're to be waiting when the door opens, verses 10 through 13. There are open doors of ministry to discover on the earth. There is also a door in heaven that will one day open for us to enter in. That door is prominent in the remaining verses. In verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, the Philadelphians probably had some knowledge of the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. After all, it is predicted in the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament, and Jesus spoke of it in some detail in his Olivet Discourse. As the revelation progressed, they would get an almost blow-by-blow description and chronology as their pastor read to them chapters 6 through 18, leading up to the second coming of Jesus in chapter 19. Jesus called it the hour of trial he wasn't talking about the trials we all expect as believers which come upon us for a season it was a very specific set period of time and notice too it was coming upon the whole world it wasn't a local persecution in philadelphia that is not the whole world it wasn't the coming destruction of jerusalem and the temple that is not the whole world it was going to be global what is being predicted here is a specific set period of global destruction. The only possible time that qualifies as a specific set period of trouble coming upon the whole world is the seven-year tribulation period. I don't know what could be clearer than that. The Philadelphians were promised they would be kept from that hour of trial. As far as they were concerned, the rapture was pre-tribulational. You know, Christians today argue... Uh, You know, when the rapture is going to take place, will we go through the tribulation, that kind of stuff. Uh, Jesus just flat out said to the Philadelphians, you are not going through the tribulation, period. I am going to deliver you. I'm going to keep you from that hour of trial. Now, some want to say this can mean they would go through the tribulation. They'd be alive on earth in the tribulation, but they'd be kept safe. And they cite as their example Noah and his family who were kept safe while the earth and its inhabitants were destroyed by the global flood. That cannot be what Jesus meant for at least three reasons. Number one, the words keep you from literally translate keep you out of. And so they weren't going to be in the tribulation at all. Two, the emphasis is that they were going to be kept out of the entire period of time, not just kept safe through trouble. And third, when Jesus said they kept his command to persevere, the verb persevere is in the past tense. He wasn't exhorting them to persevere through the future tribulation. He was telling them that because they had already persevered in their walk and their work and their witness, they would be delivered from it entirely. One more thing. One of the purposes of the tribulation was mentioned by Jesus when he said, it is to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a technical phrase that means non-believers. Whenever those who dwell on the earth as a phrase is used in this book, it is talking about non-believers. Specifically in Revelation 17:8 you read those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life. They're not believers. One great purpose of the tribulation is to test or to try non-believers, meaning giving them one last opportunity to repent and to be saved. This is why I call this series in the Revelation, The Grace of Wrath, because it is God pouring out his wrath, yet still offering salvation by grace to sinners. You know, the the tribulation is going to be horrible. Horrible. But it is not nearly as horrible as an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire, consciously being tormented. And so the Lord says, man, I've tried everything. I know how to get through to you people. And you just, I, I even sent my son and you killed him. And so I am going to pour out my wrath, the wrath of God against sin, upon the earth. Things are going to start to get really wicked crazy down there. And you're going to hear angels preaching the gospel, 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel, two witnesses who can't be killed preaching the gospel. Um, amazing gospel ministry is going to be taking place, urging you to repent. It's, it's the grace of his wrath. That is one of the big purposes of the tribulation, to turn the hearts of non believers to the Lord. Tribulation is what we might call a severe mercy. It's horrible, but in wrath, God remembers mercy and calls out through many means to every human being on the planet, urging them to repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. It is during the tribulation that the gospel will be heard by every individual alive on the planet. Now, the other great purpose of the tribulation is to prepare Jews to receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah at his second coming. In fact, the tribulation in the Old Testament is called the time of Jacob's trouble, it's got a specific use in the nation of Israel. We read that all the Jews alive at the end of it will look upon him whom they pierced, meaning Jesus. And we read that all Israel will be saved at the end of the tribulation. And so the tribulation is to try non-believers and to turn Jews to Jesus. The thing the tribulation is not at all for is to prove or purify the church. Jesus does that a different way. In Ephesians, we're told how, I'll read it to you, Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's what the Lord is doing to his church, to his bride. It doesn't say that he might sanctify and cleanse her by sending her through terrible, horrible tribulation and persecution because she needs to be purified. No, Jesus has an entirely different plan for the church that does not involve the tribulation. Didn't the Lord keep Noah safe through the flood? He did, but before he did, he called Enoch home to heaven in a rapture. Enoch is a type of the church kept from the trouble. Noah is a type, but of Israel, saved through the trouble. It's not wishful thinking to say that the church need not and will not be on the earth for any part of the tribulation. We won't. Verse 11, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Quickly doesn't mean soon or even immediately. It's that word again from which we get our word tachometer. When you put the pedal to the metal in your car, the tack redlines all at once. The use of quickly here means at any moment. This is a very definite reference to the imminent coming of Jesus for the church. It is the rapture. The Bible mentions several crowns as potential rewards for believers. For example, every believer gets the crown of life uh, because they're saved, but only those who die for Jesus get the martyr's crown, Then there are other crowns as well. Before you decide who can take your crown and how, consider this. You don't get your crown until Jesus gives them to you in heaven. Coupled with his command to hold fast, I think Jesus means to go for it, serving him so that you can earn more crowns, even more rewards. Don't hold back and thereby miss out on crowns you could have received. In fact, the word translated hold fast means to seize, so it is definitely looking ahead to crowns you haven't earned yet. You remember the popularity of the phrase carpe diem, seize the day? You probably still use it. Crown in Latin is corona. Seize the crown would be carpe corona, and that would be a great motto for us to encourage one another in our service. You hear somebody's going onto the mission field or starting a new ministry, just say carpe corona. Seize the crown. Unless you think of the Mexican beer, corona, that wouldn't be good. Just forget that. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Are you an overcomer? If you are a believer, yes, you are. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is the Christian who overcomes, not the overcomer who becomes a Christian. In other words, the Bible is declaring you are an overcomer, so be about the business of overcoming. Now, we mentioned the practice in Philadelphia of putting the names of outstanding citizens on the pillars along the main road. Jesus promised them and us that we are going to be pillars in heaven. Every one of us will be known and be known, uh, and we will enjoy equal status and equal access. I'm sure the believers in Philadelphia were thrilled by this teaching they would be pillars in the temple. If they were listening closely at the end of the book, as their pastor read, they'd hear this from chapter 21, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. If there's no temple, how can believers be its pillars? Well, there is a temple. It is the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Eternity doesn't need a physical temple because it has the Lord. We will be pillars in this sense. We will be forever, vibrantly, vitally connected in fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Everywhere we are or go, it is the temple in the sense of enjoying the fullness of the presence of God. He shall go out no more certainly speaks of the permanence we will enjoy in heaven and throughout eternity. Do you realize, I'm sure you do, how temporary and how fleeting everything is on this earth? How quickly you can be uprooted from a place or from a person and feel absolutely lost and alone? Never in heaven will you ever feel that way again. You will be home forever and ever. There will be no loss, no anguish from loss, no grief from loss. Uh, You will be in that place of permanence for the first time ever. Verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. We'll see the new Jerusalem at the end of the revelation. It isn't Jerusalem in the Middle East rebuilt. It's a city that comes down out of heaven and is in orbit with the earth. It's the city whose streets are made of gold where our mansions are being prepared for us by Jesus. If you have a problem with tattoos, you're really going to have a problem in heaven because Jesus is going to ink you. You're going to get at least three lettering tattoos according to Jesus. Number one, the name of my God. Number two, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And number three, my or Jesus's new name. I have no further commentary on these names except to say I see no reason to think Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He really is going to write them on you. Have you seen the Facebook post, hilarious misspelled tattoos? There's a bunch of them. Instead of no regrets, the tattoo reads, no Regurts. <laughs> then there's this one, you only life once. Never don't give up. Not, definitely not an English teacher, maybe common core, but I don't know. I, I'm sorry, I, can't, I, I shouldn't say things like that, but you all know that. And then one of my favorite ones, it's get better. These are real tattoos, by the way, and some of them are worse. Now, I'm sure Jesus will nail the spelling. You might want to think about fonts and colors and placement because uh, they're coming. Verse 13, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the common closing in these letters. It puts us on notice that even though the letters were written to seven specific first century fellowships, they are also for every church and every Christian in any century. Jesus opens doors. He shuts doors. Are you, are we seeking the Lord to show us by His Spirit which doors are open and which doors are shut? Let's not just wait in line, let's go for it and carpe corona. Let's pray.